Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important that I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it is I or they so we proclaim, and so you have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thinking that it would change my mind I thought that all my problems They would stay behind I was a stick of dynamite And it was just a matter of time All day, all night Now I can't hide Thought I knew myself But I guess I lied It's okay, it's okay, it's okay And don't look back at all I don't look back at all Yeah, you can call me reckless I'm a cannonball I'm a cannonball Don't know why I take a tightrope And cry when I fall All day, all night Now I can't hide Said I knew myself But I guess I lied It's okay, it's okay, it's okay you're lost for all little lost and it's all right it's okay it's okay it's okay it's okay if you're lost for all little lost it's all right 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 oh it's all right to be lost sometimes 
In June of 2021, Jay Murkowski sang that song, It's Okay, on America's Got Talent. And her performance that evening arrested not only the judges, but the audience and everyone who had watched that evening. And it wasn't just her performance that was so compelling, or her voice, but Jane's story. That song, It's Okay, is an original song she wrote about her own experience. And during the performance on America's Got Talent, she shared that she was battling cancer and that she had been given a 2% chance of living. And also not long ago, her husband had left her saying he didn't love her anymore. And so the question is, how could Jane write and sing that song that it's okay, it's all right? And the answer is that she could sing, everything's gonna be all right, that, that it's okay, because she knew deep in her soul the hope of this day the hope of resurrection, and the hope of Easter morning. Jane knew the hope that we heard read about in 1 Corinthians 15. She knew profoundly and deeply the hope that comes when you put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and in death. But I wonder if there's a number of us here this morning for whom that hope has faded a bit. That maybe you grew up in church and, and you heard the stories of Jesus' resurrection, and maybe there was even a time when you believed and, and you said, yes, I, I, I believe that's true, but over the years, the experiences you've had, the life you've lived, that, that maybe that hope has faded a bit. Uh, for others of you, maybe you're here with a, a family member or a neighbor or a friend who invited you, and, and you know, you're kind of coming because they invited you and you wanted to be nice, but you've never had this hope. This is something either that you've just rejected or you've never even really thought that much about. And, and even of those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus on our day-to-day -day Monday lives, I think we have to ask the question, does, does the resurrection really matter? Again, whether that hope's faded for you, whether you've never had that hope, whether this is the hope that you've based your life on, but does the resurrection really matter? Now, when you have cancer and you only have a 2% chance of living, whether or not this is true all of a sudden matters a whole lot. But for us sitting here in this room today, who, for the most part, healthy, happy, Looking forward to some Cadbury eggs and some ham and celebration with, with family and friends this afternoon for Easter brunch. It's, it's easy for that question, does the resurrection really matter, to sort of have an implicit answer of, well, maybe not that much. To say, does, this is, is this really just like Santa at Christmas? It's a, it's a good sentimental story. It's kind of a heartwarming tradition we do together, but it doesn't really make that much of a fundamental difference. And that question, does the resurrection really matter, is a good one, and we're not the first ones to ask it. Because actually, the people that Paul is writing to in the letter that we have in our Bibles called 1 Corinthians, he's writing to answer that very question for this early church community in the Greek city of Corinth 2,000 years ago. These early Greek Christians in Corinth 
we're wondering, does it really matter if Jesus actually rose bodily from the dead? Or maybe he just kind of had a spiritual resurrection. He's kind of a spiritual reality of, of new life, but the fact that, does it really matter if the tomb was empty or not? And again, that's the Paul, the question Paul's addressing in these verses this morning. And what the author, Paul, wants us to see is that the resurrection of Jesus matters supremely. In fact, it's Paul's claim here in this passage that the resurrection is our only hope. As he develops his train of thought here in this chapter, he wants us to see that the resurrection is our only hope for real wholeness. It's our only hope for real life. And it's our only hope for real victory over death. And so the first hope that Paul wants us to show, see us, see here, show us here, is that the resurrection is our only hope for real wholeness. You know, because it only takes, uh, you know, two minutes of, of scanning through the headlines or even just looking at your own lives and the lives of your friend and family members to know that all is not as it's supposed to be. That we live in a deeply disintegrated, a deeply broken world. Wars, viruses, oppression, divorce, abuse, illness, financial struggle, addiction, all of it remind us that we live in a world that does not work, does not function as it ought to. That there is a profound lack of wholeness in our world and in our own lives. The question is, what is the cause of this disintegration? Not just in each individual instance, but, but all the way back at the core. Why is the world this way in the first place? And, and the answer to this question that Paul gives us here, he, he answers this question, question with a word that is a very sort of churchy word, but it's an important word for us to know this morning, and, that, and that's the word sin. Now maybe some of you sort of had an internal kind of eye roll in this moment of, okay, maybe I guess that's what I expect a pastor to say, but I was hoping maybe on Easter you just kind of leave the sin and morality talk aside for a little bit. But we can't because Paul brings it up multiple times here. And, and Paul connects the defeat of sin to our hope for wholeness three times in this chapter. Now, take a look on the screen here. In verse 3, he says this, for I passed on to you what was most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then you see it again down in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. And then all the way at the end of the chapter in verse 56, he says this, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, as well as all of the authors of Scripture, they place this idea, this concept of sin, at the core of what is wrong with our world. Now getting the right diagnosis to what is wrong is really critical to fixing anything. You have to know what is the problem in order to bring the right solution. And I was reminded of this uh, earlier in the winter when uh, our furnace was not working correctly. So we bought a new house not that long ago. It's our first kind of winter in the home. And at one point, 
in one of those really cold days in January, beginning of February, uh, we would have the thermostat, you know, cranked up to 65, 68, 66, whatever in that range, but it just would never catch up. And at one point, as we were putting the guests to bed, the thermostat was reading like 55 degrees. Like, this is going to be a cold night in the house tonight. And the thermostat was giving some weird readings, like it couldn't connect, or there was, you know, wasn't getting enough power to the thermostat. And so I called the HVAC guy, and I knew when we had done the inspections, they said the HVAC system is older, it might need to be replaced in the next several years. And I thought, I hope that after just moving to this house and spending all the money to get all the furnishings, we don't have to replace the entire HVAC system. So he came out, and he looked at the thermostat. It was one of those Nest, those real fancy Nest thermostats that we had in the house that was there when we bought it. And he's like, yeah, sometimes these, these fail. And so, you know, he installed a new, you know, cheap kind of thermostat, but even a cheap thermostat's like 120 bucks. So he puts this thing in and it's like, oh, this is working great. Okay. It's just the thermostat. It was not the HVAC system. And like two nights later, I wake up and it's cold in the house. I go out and it's like it's reading low again. I was like, oh no, it wasn't the thermostat. The HVAC system does need to be replaced. And in my mind, I'm like mentally doing the math and the bank account, what's in the savings. And I, th- I just had this, in- it was 2 a.m. I had this insight. Maybe I, I just, I think I need to go down and check the filter, the furnace filter. So I go down, I stumble into the basement, I pull out the fin- filter, and sure enough, the filter is just filthy. And I had a new one there. I unwrap it, I put it in, and it works beautifully. I mean, the HVAC guy never even looked at the filter. I was like, that would have been nice. It would have saved me 120 bucks on a thermostat. <laughs> but diagnosing the right problem, I mean, it was a five, I, you know, it could have been a $100 thermostat, a $7,000 furnace, but it turned out it was a $5 filter. So you got to know what the core problem is if you're going to provide the right solution. And you know, every one of us has sort of a working sort of set of what we think the problem is, how we define what is really wrong with the world. And maybe you say, oh, what's really wrong with the world is that there's just a lack of education. You know, if we could get people to have the right views, if we can give them the right education, the right opportunity, that, that then things would get better. Maybe that's part of the problem. Uh, for, for others, they may say that we just need, we just need to cultivate a culture of more, of more kindness and civility. Or others would say, well, may, maybe our culture is too capitalist or too Marxist. Or others might say our, our culture is too progressive or too conservative. If we could just move to the center of this, or we could have more of this or less of that, then, then things would be better. But the scriptures locate the core problem somewhere else. The scriptures from beginning to end say that the core problem is is our estrangement from our creator because of sin, which is why sin is more than just a breaking of an arbitrary law. I think that's sometimes how we can, how Christians have talked about sin and we think about sin is like, oh, there's a speed limit posted at 45. It could have been 35. It could have been 65, but they decided 45. And, you know, if I'm driving 47, now I'm, I'm breaking this law, and it's just kind of a, you know, it, it could have been 50. It could have been, it could have been anything. It's just this arbitrary law. But that is not the core of what sin is. I've always been helped by this definition of sin from the New City Catechism. You can take a look here. It says, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, 
and then finally, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and disintegration of all creation. But you notice that definition starts, it doesn't start with breaking a rule, it starts with a, a rejecting of God or an estrangement from him. You see, sin is a relational problem, but before it is a moral problem. It is a rejecting or ignoring the one who made you. And for there to be real wholeness, that relationship has to be restored because wholeness is a matter of relationships being whole. This can only happen if sin is forgiven. Uh, one New Testament scholar explains it this way. He says, the resurrection does not simply overturn death's destructive forces of decay, but it prevails over sin's deadly poison. Christ's death for the forgiveness of sins causes death to lose its ultimacy because when sin is overcome, death is robbed of its power. And you might say, okay, but so what? How does this help me in my Monday life? And so if that's true, the resurrection means the places in your life where you feel the most shame. The moments in life where you would do anything to go back in time and change what happened. The words that you wish with all of your heart that you could take back, that you could unsay, that those places of shame and brokenness and just utter failure in your life, the resurrection means that those places are where Jesus wants to meet you, to heal you, to forgive you. He is not ashamed of you. He doesn't want you to hide those parts of your story. Those are the very parts he's come for. It's why he came. He gave his very life so they could heal those parts of your life. To bring wholeness even in those places. So that's the first hope, hope for real wholeness, but there's more than that. The resurrection is also our only hope for real life. Here's what I mean by that. In the New Testament, the word resurrection means bodies. It means a bodily resurrection. When Paul says the New, that Jesus was raised from the dead, he doesn't mean that Jesus was a ghost or a spirit or a, a phantom of some kind, that he left behind his body and was translated into some kind of disembodied ethereal existence. No, when the New Testament writers use the language of resurrection, they mean that he was raised with a physical body. He could eat. He could drink. He could be touched. So listen to these verses where Paul stakes everything on Jesus' body having been raised, not just his spirit. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians 15, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's a metaphor for, for death. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. That's a reference to sin entering the world through Adam's sin, but there's a new and better Adam in Jesus who is bringing resurrection. Now, some Christians in Corinth seem to believe some sort of spiritual resurrection had already taken place. And again, in, in the Greek cultural context and the thought of, of that time in which the Corinthians were, were deeply steeped, there was no such thing as a resurrection of, of, of bodies. That wasn't a thing in Greek philosophy. There was a sense that there was an immaterial soul that escaped the prison of the body, 
But that is not resurrection. That's just a different way of talking about death. But Paul's claim, echoing the the whole Jewish teaching of the Old Testament, is that the only real human life is an embodied life. That to be a human being is to have a body. That there isn't a way to be human that is just an immaterial world, an immaterial life. That a human being, a real life, is an embodied life for a human being. And even today in our culture, in the church, we are still seeped sometimes in these ways of thinking that our bodies are a bad thing or a prison to be escaped, but God has created our bodies good and will redeem them one day. Yet even those who are on the cutting edge of science and technology increasingly hope ways of finding ways of transcending death by merging our memories and our bodies with computers that will outlast our physical bodies. Friends, that is not real human life. Real life is embodied life. British New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who's perhaps the leading expert in the world on the resurrection, summarizes the Greek view this way. He says, However, all, however, the Greeks agreed. There was no resurrection. Death could not be reversed. Homer said it, Aeschylus said it, Sophocles seconded it. What is it like down there? Asked a man of his departed friend in the third century BCE. Very dark, comes the reply. Any way back up? It is a lie. And then N.T. Wright continues, to speak of the destruction of the body and the continuing existence, however blessed, of something else, call it a soul for the sake of argument, is not to speak of resurrection, but simply of death itself. Resurrection is not simply death from another viewpoint. It is the reversal of death. It is cancellation. It is the destruction of its power. You see, bodies will be raised if we have our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, to be animated by the Holy Spirit. The Christian hope for a new resurrection is is for a physically embodied life animated by the very Spirit of God. That's what Paul means when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, then verse 42, when he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. He says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, this is a verse that sometimes has stripped us up, and, and we thought, well, here isn't, doesn't Paul say we'll have a, a spiritual body? We won't be physical any longer? And that couldn't be further from the truth. Paul's point between a natural and a spiritual body is the, di- like the difference between a diesel-powered ship and a sailing ship. Paul is describing what powers our bodies, not what they are made of. When you talk about a diesel-powered ship, you're not talking about the ship is made of diesel or a sailing ship is made of sails. You're talking about what gives that ship its power, what propels it through the ocean. When Paul talks about a natural body, he's talking about a body that is powered by this mortal human life. But when he talks about a spiritual body, he's talking about our hope for resurrection that will be powered by the spiritual life that can never be taken from us. The resurrection means that you will be you with your body, but renewed and restored. Your hope isn't for a heaven where you'll have a ghostly encounter with your loved ones in an ethereal afterlife. No, your hope is for a real embodied life where you will embrace your loved one and hug their body and touch their face and hear their laugh. That's the New Testament hope of resurrection. 
So the resurrection means we have hope for real wholeness, hope for real life, which means finally that it's our only hope for real victory. The resurrection is our only hope for real victory over death. Because when that moment of receiving that new body, that real human life for all time comes in the new heavens and the new earth, that will be the moment when death dies forever. Because right now, friends, death makes a mockery of us all. No matter how much we try to sanitize it or tame it, death taunts us. It taunts you. It says your life, your loved ones, your hopes are all meaningless and futile and you cannot escape me. I will take it all. I always have. But friends, death does not get the last word. Take a look at what Paul writes in the final verses of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, where he says, when this incorruptible body is closed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is closed with immortality, then the saying that is written will, come, will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting, your taunts are over death. You have been defeated. Do you have this hope? This hope for victory over death. Uh, the resurrection means that the love of God can never be taken from you. The resurrection gives you the bedrock hope that you will always be loved by God no matter what. Listen to this from the wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly. The author writes, have you ever considered what is true of you if you are in Christ? That in order for you to fall short of loving embrace into the heart of Christ, both now and into eternity, Christ would have to be pulled down out of heaven and put back in the grave. His death and resurrection make it just for Christ never to cast out his own, no matter how often they fail. Friends, the resurrection is our only hope for real wholeness, for real life, for real victory over death. And on February 19th of this year, that truth was put to the ultimate test for Jane. It was on that day that she died from her cancer at age 31. And you know, when we hear stories like that, everything in us screams that that is not the way it is supposed to be. Because it isn't. And we grieve, and we should grieve, because death is a monster. But friends, we do not grieve without hope, because as Jane's family had this first shared at her funeral, we have this hope. We have the hope of resurrection. Her pastor read these verses from 1 Thessalonians 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. In the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And almost exactly a year before she died, Jane wrote these words in her blog. She called, said, call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that is not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with the loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Now, if what Paul wrote here in these verses isn't true, 
If Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then Jane is a fool. And she's believed a lie. And it's not okay. Nothing's okay. And she is gone forever. It will never be okay. And it is not all right. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then those of us who share her hope in the resurrection of Jesus will join her one day in a new creation infused with new life that can never be taken away. And so the question is this morning, is Jane a fool or did she actually find the only hope that matters? The only hope that any of us can have. The only hope we can have in true for this life and for the next. Because every one of us is going to face this moment. Every one of us will die. And yet Jesus is alive and has conquered death. Death, the monster. And if you are with him, then it will be more than okay. And you know, it's not just Jane who's found this hope. It's me. It's so many of you gathered in this room. It's also the hope that Vanessa, one of our Christ Community Congregation members, has found as well. Take a look at her story. Addiction is a very powerful thing. I mean, it's, it's a chain. It's heavy chains. One night I had came home and my parents had asked me if I was doing drugs. And I was at the time. I had just started dabbling. And so my parents confronted me about it. And I was like, no, no, I would never do that. I found another place to live with another guy, so I would rather move out than to admit my wrongs. I went from, you know, just t taking pills to get through my shift at work, not holding down a job. My addiction's getting worse. I don't have money to be able to afford my drugs. How am I gonna keep going? It was a really sad time for all of us because, you know, my mom felt like she had failed. My dad felt the same way. I was more angry than anything and ashamed. It's that shame that makes you kind of distance yourself from the people you love. I hid from my parents. It got to the point where they would even come try to look for me at the house where I was staying. I would hide in my room. I could hear them knocking on the door and I would just I refused to open the door because I knew that if they saw me, they, they would know immediately something's wrong. Her and my dad were so sad one day that they were like, you know, there's a church right here down the block. Why don't we go check it out and see what that's all about? She still had all this stress about wanting to take care of her daughter and, and save her from whatever she was going through. But at the same time, she was also learning to let go and let God. One day I went to go visit my parents and we were sitting at the dinner table and my mom told me about this dream she'd had. And in this dream, I was a little three, four year old girl, but I was, I was looking down really sad. She's like, all I could see were your eyelashes and then tears running down your face. And I was trying to reach out to you to grab you and be like, don't cry, I'm here with you, don't cry. And every time I try to grab you, you would slip in between my fingers. And in that moment, I just lost it. I started crying, and that's when I admitted to my mom, I do need help. It's not just a dream, Mom. I need help. I'm not okay. If she wouldn't have made the first step to come to church and seek God, I would have never gotten 
to know God. And my, my story would be very different. It could be my mom sitting here talking about, you know, her testimony about the loss of a daughter to addiction rather than her daughter sitting here saying it's possible to get clean. Prior to getting baptized, I was still struggling with my addiction. It was very fresh still. Once I made the decision that I'm gonna take my, my relationship with God serious, this is life or death for me. Once I made that decision, it's like I went underwater and God brought me back like a completely different person with a new perspective, with, with new needs and wants and, and desires. Even the own power of addiction can be broken by God's power, by God's will. Well, Vanessa, have you come to trust and treasure Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life? Yes, yes all right. Friends, that's the power of resurrection life. Our only hope for real wholeness, for real life, for real victory over death. And in a moment, we're gonna celebrate communion together as a church family, as this tangible, visible, tactile reminder that Jesus' body was broken so that we could be made whole that he gave his life so that we could have real life, that through his death, he gave us victory over death.